Hello, folks. Welcome back. It is wonderful to have you here. Everyone, how are you? How on earth is everyone? Folks, thank you so very much for joining me tonight. Van says, doing amazing. Like, doing so good. Hey, Van, that's awesome to hear. Dahlia, I hope you're doing well as well. I know there are some, there are, uh, you know, changes going on in some people's lives. Though y'all are the people that I know about, what else is going on in people's lives right now? Luis, hello. Thank you very much for the raid. Welcome in. Welcome in, herd. <laughs> How you doing, Gwen Dog? Gwen Dog has had a big change as well. Gwen, I hope you are, uh, I hope you're feeling good about that. It is great to have you here. I can tell you that much for sure. Um, let's see, I'm going to bounce over to the Hunger Games discussion channel. That's the one that I'm going to hang out in over on Discord. Yeah, Gwen Dog, I saw that. Gwen, how you feeling? <laughs> Hopefully, I hope you're feeling powerful. That's my hope for you, is that you're feeling powerful. Uh, Addy, hello, how are you doing? MMP says I'm going to have to miss tonight's reading. MMP, that is quite all right. We will miss you, but uh, it'll be here for you. Yeah, Dahlia, I'm glad to hear it. Of course. <laughs> you're you're welcome. No problem. Yeah, I hope everyone's doing great. I always hope that though. You know, that is that's always my hope. <laughs> and I mean it every time I say it. I know it's a little tough. It's a little tough to to believe it, but yeah, I I do really hope everyone's doing great. Um and uh yeah, Gwendog <laughs> Gwendog, let's see. Oh, what is that? What is that emote that I'm seeing down there? I can't even. Is it a little bird? Is it a little? It's like a maybe a little party, party face. As far as I can tell. You like the job, but the boss not so much. Uh, hey, a bad boss will ruin a good job. Absolutely, absolutely, it will. Um, you know, you can you can like the work of something. That that's the that's the big tough thing about lots of jobs is that there are so many. Things where, uh, there's so many professions wherein the job of it, whether it's, uh, you know, childcare or, um, you know, uh, being a librarian or uh, laboratory work, all these things, the job of it itself, you can really enjoy. And then there are other necessary parts of the job that you just can't stand, you know? All of the, like, uh, whether it's, like, being in between jobs for someone in kind of a, a gig situation, lots of artists are in that. Um, for laboratory workers, you know, that you might love the lab work and then all of the paperwork is terrible. Or you might love the lab work, but the, uh, you know, the, the environment is terrible. Um, I know for a lot of the teachers that I know, they love teaching. They love spending time with kids. They love, they love, uh, 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 <laughs> they love helping people to learn and become learners, but it's really challenging to deal with uh, administration and the parents and all this stuff. So, yep, I I get it. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff around a job that isn't quite the job, but it's the job. You know, yeah. Heart Hook says it's my birthday today. Heart Hook, who is gonna sing you happy birthday? Heart Hook, I want you to pick a character, and I'm gonna sing happy birthday to you as that character. Who do you want? Who's singing, Harthook? Uh, Jem says, for some reason, I can't see chat on my other device. Hello, everyone. Hello, Gems. Hello. I will say, so So there are two people that uh, sort of in my life have regularly titled people Deer. Uh, regularly sort of used Deer or Deers as like a... <laughs> 
as a um uh you know as a as a nice little colloquial familiar term uh and those two people are death metal dahlia and mrs doubtfire and so <laughs> occasionally when i see it in text the only way that i can read it is hello dear <laughs> that is where i find myself so look just just know that's what you're doing dahlia <laughs> Hey, are you folks ready for some more Hunger Games today? We've got a little bit of review to go through. I definitely want to sing this song if I can get a if I can get word from Heart Hook. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope everyone's doing absolutely great, y'all. This week, chapters seven, eight, and nine. This book is so nice because I can just charge through it exactly three chapters at a time. Heart Hook says, "I will let you know." All right, Heart Hook. And if it looks like I, you know, if we if we start to get into the chapter, then I'll do it in between chapters, um, and you can let me know later if you're still thinking. That's totally fine. Hey, the Frizz is in. Hello, Frizz. How do you do? <laughs> How y'all doing? Um, yeah, today seven, eight, and nine. Uh, the this book is divided up so perfectly. Three streams per part. Three parts for the book, and then each stream is three chapters. It's so nice, and there's not a ton of variation. Um, Suzanne Collins really uh, constructed this in a really even-handed way. It's really nice. <laughs> Lots of hellos to Frizz. Indeed, hello, Frizz. How are you? Um, today, uh, these chapters are going to be getting into... I mean, these, these are the last... This is the last part of part one. This is the last episode of part one. We're going to be getting into part two, which is titled, I believe it's just called The Games. It is indeed. So we, today, the last stream of part one, The Tributes. So chapter seven, uh, chapter seven brings us in on a night of slumber, but uh, we're coming off of chapters four, five, and six. These titles, uh, these chapters don't have titles. And so it's a little harder for me to keep up with like, okay, what exactly happened in these chapters? So we're just going to have to take a look. Chapters four, five, and six. Peta and Katniss. Uh, Katniss, of course, is trying to navigate like, what what is this new world that I'm a part of now? They have, uh, they're on their way to the capital and they eventually arrive. They have um, uh, a few little ceremonial things going on, but ultimately the big questions remain the same. Can Katniss trust Peta? Right? Is is are they going to try and work together until the end, or are they going to launch into this thing knowing, hey, you and I, we're enemies, and we're going to behave like enemies? That's the big question. Uh, they managed to get Hamish to really start to pay attention to them and actually begin to uh, help them out. And Hamish, it seems like, is going to stay a little bit more sober and is going to be a little bit more helpful. The big event in all of this is the introduction ceremony, wherein uh, Katniss has her stylist team, including Cinna, C-I-N-N-A. Cinna is a, um, a a quiet, more reserved stylist, unlike many of the ones that Katniss has seen be a part of the games before. And Cinna is really the star of the show here. Usually, District 12 gets fully overlooked, but Cinna has literally lit these two tributes on fire. Katniss and Peta go out on their chariot wearing flaming capes, essentially, and really make a big bang. They're able to, they're able to make a big impression, and uh, it is just possible. It is just possible. It's enough of an impression. They'll get some sponsors. Maybe there's a chance. Maybe there's a chance. And that's where we're at. So, folks, uh, I really hope you will enjoy this today. Uh, let's see. 
Anything else over in chat? Uh, I do want to. I do want to make mention here. Uh, you could say they warmed the audience's heart. Yes, you could, Gems. You could indeed. Um, I want to make mention uh, because Gems has popped in uh, over after last week's um, uh, stream with uh, a really great sort of. Uh, weekly question. So why is Unity seen as rebellion? That's kind of the, the big core question. And Noxora, who is a, a, that's a name I haven't seen in a little while. Noxora has jumped in um, with a great sort of, uh, a great take on this. And so I'm just going to cover this really quick. I don't know if Noxora is even in tonight, but I do want to make sure to cover this because these midweek discussions are great. Uh, so Gems, thank you for getting that kicked off. And Noxora, thank you for the following. Noxora says, I think PETA and Katniss their show of unity is seen as rebellion because it challenges the idea that betrayal and only looking out for one's own interests is the only way to win the games. Yes, tributes do make alliances, but even that is clear that trust, attachment, or compassion is a surefire way to get yourself killed. By holding hands, this is during their uh, during their procession uh, out into uh, the, the introduction, as they're wearing their flaming capes, they're holding hands, the only tributes to be doing so. By holding hands, Peta and Katniss conveyed the idea that they were a team, maybe even that they cared about each other. And those ideas are something so completely at odds with what the games stand for, it really shook the boat. They defied the games by showing that the system could be changed, even beaten. That was seen as an act of rebellion. In terms of our world, I would say that unity can be seen as rebellion because multiple people fighting for a cause or pushing an idea is likely to make more of an impact and be more of a threat than a single person. If one person says they believe the Earth is flat, you can brush them off as delusional. However, if multiple people told you the Earth is flat, <laughs> you would start to question your views. Oh, boy. In, ter uh, in turn, that makes you wonder if your beliefs are wrong. It's a scary idea because you don't want to be wrong, so you see people... Uh, let's see. So you see uh, these people as defiance of your belief. It was very wrong. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry, that was very long. Not sure if I addressed the ideas correctly. Feel free to give me pointers. Yeah, so uh, sort of the the numbers give credence to ideas, right? And so when there is when there's unity over certain things, uh, you know, unity over this idea that uh, <laughs> that the um, that the games are not going to divide us, this sense of unity is really going to make an impact. It's going to make people take notice. You know, uh, every individual tribute can rant and rail against the idea of this. Even, you know, individual people can can make a big stink about it, but it's not going to make nearly as much of an impact as holding hands, uh, as, uh, you know, showing unity. Um, an even bigger one, I would say, is that little salute that all of the District 12 um, uh, citizens gave to... Katniss, as she was on stage after she had volunteered to take her sister's place. That's that's really going to do it. A true show of unity. It was quiet. It, uh, you know, it didn't perpetrate violence. Um, and yet it was a, a very clear signal. Hey, all of us are together on at least one thing here. And that is, screw this whole shindig. There we go, folks. Everyone. I want to thank you for being here tonight, and I hope you enjoy our next chapter, which begins imminently.
Chapter 7 My slumbers are filled with disturbing dreams. The face of the red-headed girl intertwines with gory images from earlier Hunger Games, with my mother withdrawn and unreachable, with Prim emaciated and terrified. I bolt up screaming for my father to run as the mine explodes into a million deadly bits of light. Dawn is breaking through the windows. The capital has a misty, haunted air. My head aches and I must have bitten into the side of my cheek in the night. My tongue probes the ragged flesh and I taste blood. Slowly, I drag myself out of bed and into the shower. I arbitrarily punch buttons on the control board and end up hopping from foot to foot as alternating jets of icy cold and steaming hot water assault me. Then I'm deluged in lemony foam that I have to scrape off with a heavy bristled brush. Oh well, at least my blood's flowing. When I'm dried and moisturized with lotion, I find an outfit that's been left for me at the front of the closet. Tight black pants, a long-sleeved burgundy tunic, leather shoes. I put my hair in the single braid down my back. This is the first time since the morning of the reaping that I resemble myself. No fancy hair and clothes, no flaming capes, just me. Looking like I could be headed for the woods. It calms me. Hamish doesn't give us an exact time for breakfast, and no one has contacted me this morning, but I'm hungry, so I head down to the dining room, hoping there will be food. I'm not disappointed. While the table is empty, a long board off to the side has been laid with at least twenty dishes. A young man, in Avox, stands at attention by the spread. When I ask if I can serve myself, he nods assent. I load a plate with eggs, sausages, batter cakes covered in thick orange preserves, slices of pale purple melon. As I gorge myself, I watch the sun rise over the capital. I have a second plate of hot grain smothered in beef stew. Finally, I fill a plate with rolls and sit at the table, breaking bits off and dipping them into hot chocolate, the way Peter did on the train. My mind wanders to my mother and Prim. They must be up. My mother getting their breakfast of mush. Prim milking her goat before school. Just two mornings ago, I was home. Can that be right? Yes, just two. And now, how empty the house feels, even from a distance. What did they say last night about my fiery debut at the games? Did it give them hope, or simply add to their terror when they saw the reality of twenty-four tributes circled together, knowing only one could live? Hamish and Peter come in, bid me good morning, fill their plates. It makes me irritated that Peter's wearing exactly the same outfit I am. I need to say something to Cinna. This twins act is going to blow up in our faces once the games begin. Surely they must know this. Then I remember Haymitch telling me to do exactly what the stylists tell me to do. If it was anyone but Cinna, I might be tempted to ignore him. But after last night's triumph, I don't have a lot of room to criticize his choices. I'm nervous about the training. There will be three days in which all the tributes practice together. On the last afternoon, we'll each get a chance to perform in private before the game-makers. The thought of meeting other tributes face-to-face -face makes me queasy. 
I turn the roll I've just taken from my basket over and over in my hands, but my appetite is gone. When Hamish has finished several platters of stew, he pushes his plate back with a sigh. He takes a flask from his pocket and takes a long pull on it and leans his elbows on the table. So, let's get down to business. Training. First off, if you like, I'll coach you separately. You decide now. And why would you coach us separately? I ask. See, if you had a secret skill that you didn't want the other one to know about, says Hamish. I exchange a look with Peter. I don't have any secret skills, and I already know what yours is, right? I mean, I've eaten enough of your squirrels. Never thought about Peter eating the squirrels I shot. Somehow I always pictured the baker quietly going off and frying them up for himself. Not out of greed, but because town families usually eat expensive butcher meat, beef and chicken and horse. You can couch us together, I tell Hamish. Peter nods. All right, so you give me some idea of what you can do. I can't do anything, says Peter, unless you count baking bread. Sorry, I don't. Katniss, I know you're handy with a knife already, says Hamish. Not really, but I can hunt, I say, with a bow and arrow. And you're good, asks Hamish. I have to think about it. I've been putting food on the table for four years. That's no small task. I'm not as good as my father was, but he'd had more practice. I've got better aim than Gale, but I've had more practice. He's a genius with traps and snares. I'm all right, I say. She's excellent, says Peter. My father buys her squirrels. He always comments on how the arrows never pierce the body. She hits everyone in the eye. It's the same with the rabbits that she sells the butcher. She can even bring down deer. This assessment of my skills from Peter takes me totally by surprise. First, that he ever noticed. Secondly, that he's talking me up. What are you doing? I ask him suspiciously. What are you doing? If he's going to help you, he's got to know what you're capable of. Don't underestimate yourself, says Peter. I don't know why, but this rubs me the wrong way. What about you? I've seen in the market you can lift hundred-pound bags of flour, I snap at him. Tell him that. That's not nothing. Yeah, I'm sure that the is going to be full of flour to chuck at people. It's not like being able to use a weapon. You know that's not, he shoots back. He can wrestle, I tell Hamish. He came in second in our school's competition last year. Only after his brother. What use is that? How many times have you seen someone wrestle someone else to death? Says Peter in disgust. There's always hand-to-hand combat. All you need is to come up with a knife and you'll at least stand a chance. If I get jumped, I'm dead. I can hear my voice rising in anger. But you won't. You're going to be living up in trees eating raw squirrels, picking people off with arrows. You know what my mother said to me when she came to say goodbye? As if it, to cheer me up, she says, maybe District 12 will finally have a winner. And then I realise she didn't mean me, she meant you! Bursts out Peter. Ah, oh, she meant you, I say with a wave of dismissal. She said, she's a survivor, that one. That pulls me up short. Did his mother really say that about me? Did she rate me over her own son? I see the pain in Peter's eyes, and I know he isn't lying. 
Suddenly I'm behind the bakery and I can feel the chill of the rain running down my back, the hollowness in my belly. I sound 11 years old again when I speak. But only because someone helped me. Peter's eyes flicker down to the roll in my hands and I know he remembers that day too. But he just shrugs. People are going to help you in the arena too. They'll be tripping over each other to sponsor you. No more than you, I say. Peter rolls his eyes at Hamish. She's got no idea. The effect that she can have. He runs his fingernail along the wood grain in the table, refusing to look at me. What on earth does he mean? People helped me? When we were dying of starvation, no one helped me. No one except Peter. Once I had something to barter with, things changed. I'm a tough trader. Or am I? What effect do I have? That I'm weak and needy? Is he suggesting I've got good deals because people pitied me? I try to think if this is true. Perhaps some of the merchants were a little generous in their trades, but I always attributed that to their long-standing relationship with my father. Besides, my game is first class. No one pitied me. I glower at the roll, sure that he meant to insult me. After about a minute of this, Hamish says, Well then, well, 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 Katniss, there's no guarantee that'll be bows and arrows in the arena. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> I'm not drunk, but Hamish definitely is. Well then, well, 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 Katniss, there's no guarantee there'll be bows and arrows in the arena. But during your private lessons with the game makers, show them what you can do. Until then, stay clear of the archery. Are you any good at trapping? I know a few basic snares, I mutter. That may be significant in terms of food, says Hamish. And Peter, she's right, never underestimate strength in the arena. Very often, physical power tilts the advantage to a player. In the training centre, they'll have weights, but don't reveal how much you can lift in front of the other attributes. The plan is the same for both of you. You go to group training, spend the time trying to learn something you didn't know. Throw a spear, swing a mace, learn to tie a decent knot. Save showing what you're best at, until your private lessons are we clear, says Amidge. Peter and I nod. One last thing. In public, I want you by each other's side every minute, says Hamish. We both start to object, but Hamish slams his hand on the table. Every minute! It's not open for discussion. You agreed to do as I said. You will be together. You will appear amiable to each other. Now get out! Meet Effie at the elevator at ten for training. I bite my lip and stalk back to my room making sure Peter can hear the door slam. I sit on the bed, hating Hamish, hating Peta, hating myself for mentioning that day long ago in the rain. It's such a joke. Peta and I are going to go along pretending to be friends, talking up each other's strengths, insisting that the other take credit for their abilities. Because in fact, at some point, we're going to have to knock it off and accept we're bitter adversaries. Which I'd be prepared to do right now if it wasn't for Hamish's stupid instructions that we stick together in training. It's my own fault, I guess, for telling him he didn't have to coach us separately. But that didn't mean I wanted to do everything with Peter, who, by the way, clearly doesn't want to be partnering up with me either. 
I can hear Peter's voice in my head. She got no idea the effect she can have. Obviously meant to demean me, right? But a tiny part of me wonders if this was a compliment. That he meant I was appealing in some way. It's weird how much he's noticed me. Like the attention he's paid to my hunting. And apparently, I have not been as oblivious to him as I imagined either. The flower, the wrestling. I have kept track of the boy with the bread. It's almost ten. I clean my teeth, smooth back my hair again. Anger temporarily blocked out my nervousness about meeting the other tributes, but now I can feel my anxiety rising again. By the time I meet Effie and Peter at the elevator, I catch myself biting my nails. I stop at once. The actual training rooms are below ground level of our building. With these elevators, the ride is less than a minute. The doors open into an enormous gymnasium filled with various weapons and obstacle courses. Although it's not yet ten, we're the last ones to arrive. The other tributes are gathered in a tense circle. They each have a square cloth with their district number pinned on their shirts. While someone pins the number twelve on my back, I do a quick assessment. Peter and I are the only two dressed alike. As soon as we join the circle, the head trainer, a tall athletic woman named Atala, steps up and begins to explain the training schedule. Experts in each skill will remain at their stations. We will be free to travel from area to area as we choose per our mentor's instructions. Some of the stations teach survival skills, others fighting techniques. We are forbidden to engage in a combat exercise with another tribute. There are assistants on hand if we want to practice with a partner. When Atala begins to read down the list of the skill stations, my eyes can't help flitting around to the other tributes. It's the first time we've been assembled, on level ground, simple clothes. My heart sinks. Almost all the boys, and at least half of the girls, are bigger than I am, even though many of the tributes have never been fed properly. You can see it in their bones, their skin, the hollow look in their eyes. I may be smaller naturally, but overall my family's resourcefulness has given me an edge in that area. I stand straight, and while I'm thin, I'm strong. The meat and plants from the woods, combined with the exertion it takes to get them, has given me a healthier body than most of those I see around me. The exceptions are the kids from the wealthier districts. The volunteers, the ones who have been fed and trained throughout their lives for this moment. The tributes from 1, 2, and 4 traditionally have this look about them. It's technically against the rules to train tributes before they reach the capital, but it happens every year. In District 12, we call them the career tributes, or just the careers. And like as not, the winner will be one of them. The slight advantage I held coming into the training center, my fiery entrance last night, seems to vanish in the presence of my competition. The other tributes were jealous of us, but not because we were amazing, because our stylists were. Now I see nothing but contempt in the glances of career tributes. Each one must have a fifty to a hundred pounds on me. They project arrogance and brutality. When Atala releases us, they head straight for the deadliest looking weapons in the gym and handle them with ease. I'm thinking it's lucky I'm a fast runner when Peter nudges my arm and I jump. He's still beside me, per Hamish's instructions. His expression is sober. Where would you like to start? I look around at the career tributes who are showing off, clearly trying to intimidate the field. 
than at the others, the underfed, the incompetent, shakily having their first lesson with a knife or an axe. Suppose we tie some knots, I say. There you are, says Peter. We cross to an empty station where the trainer seems pleased to have students. You get the feeling that the knot-tying class is not something the Hunger Games has as a hot spot. When he realizes I know something about snares, he shows us a simple, excellent trap that will leave a human competitor dangling from one leg in a tree. We concentrate on this skill for an hour until both of us have mastered it. Then we move on to camouflage. Peter genuinely seems to enjoy this station. Swirling a combination of mud and clay and berry juices around on his pale skin, weaving disguises from vines and leaves. The trainer who runs the camouflage station is full of enthusiasm at his work. I, I do the cakes, he admits to me. The cakes? I ask. I've been preoccupied with watching the boy from District 2 send a spear through a dummy's heart from 15 yards. What cakes? At home. The iced ones for the bakery, he says. He means the ones they display in the windows. Fancy cakes with flowers and pretty things painted on frosting. They're for birthdays and New Year's Day. When we're in the square, Prim always drags me over to admire them, although we'd never be able to afford one. There's little enough beauty in District 12, though, so I can hardly deny her this. I look more critically at the design in Peter's arm. The alternating pattern of light and dark suggests sunlight falling through the leaves in the woods. I wonder how he knows this, since I doubt he's ever been beyond the fence. Has he been able to pick this up just from that scraggly old apple tree in his backyard? Somehow the whole thing, his skill, those inaccessible cakes, the praise of the camouflage expert, annoys me. That's lovely. If only you could frost someone to death, I say. Don't be so superior. Never can tell what we'll find in the arena. Say it's actually a gigantic cake. Say we move on, I break in. So the next three days pass, with Peter and I going quietly from station to station. We do pick up some valuable skills, from starting fires to knife throwing, making shelter. Despite Hamage's order to appear mediocre, Peter excels in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and I sweep the edible plants test without blinking an eye. We steer clear of archery and weightlifting, though, wanting to save those for our private sessions. The game makers appear early on the first day. Twenty or so men and women dressed in deep purple robes. They sit in the elevated stands that surround the gymnasium, sometimes wandering about to watch us, jotting down notes, other times eating at the endless banquet that has been set out for them, ignoring the lot of us. But they do seem to be keeping their eye on the District 12 tributes. Several times I've looked up to find one fixated on me. They consult with the trainers during our meals as well. We see them all gathered together when we come back. Breakfast and dinner are served on our floor. But at lunch, the twenty-four of us eat in a dining room off the gymnasium. Food is arranged on carts around the room, and you serve yourself. The career tributes tend to gather rowdily around one table as if to prove their superiority, that they have no fear of one another and consider the rest of us beneath their notice. Most of the other tributes sit alone, like lost sheep. No one says a word to us. 
Peter and I eat together, and since Hamish keeps dogging us about it, try to keep up a friendly conversation during the meals. It's not easy to find a topic. Talking of home is painful. Talking of the present is unbearable. One day, Peter empties out our bread basket and points out how they've been careful to include types from the districts, along with the refined bread of the capital. The fish-shaped loaf tinted green with seaweed from District 4, the crescent moon roll dotted with seeds from District 11. Somehow, although it's all made from the same stuff, it looks a lot more appetizing than the ugly drop biscuits, the standard fare from back home. And there you have it, says Peter, scooping the breads back into the basket. You certainly know a lot, I say. <laughs> Only about bread. All right, now laugh as if I've said something funny. We both give a somewhat convincing laugh and ignore the stares from around the room. All right, I'll keep smiling pleasantly and you talk, says Peter. It's wearing us both out. Hamish's direction to be friendly. Because ever since I slammed my door, there's been a chill in the air between us. But we have our orders. Did I ever tell you about the time I was chased by a bear? No, but it sounds fascinating, says Peter. I try and animate my face as I recall the event. A true story, in which I'd foolishly challenged a black bear over the rights to a beehive. Peter laughs and asks questions right on cue. He's much better at this than I am. The second day, while we're taking a shot at spear throwing, he whispers to me, I think that we've got a shadow. I throw my spear, which I'm not too bad at, actually, if I don't have to throw too far, and see the little girl from District 11 standing back a bit, watching us. She's the 12-year-old, the one who reminded me of Prim in stature. Up close, she looks about 10. She has bright, dark eyes and satiny brown skin and stands tilted up on her toes with her arms slightly extended to her sides, as if ready to take wing at the slightest sound. It's impossible not to think of a bird. I pick up another spear while Peter throws. I think that her name's Rue, he says softly. I bite my lip. Rue is a small yellow flower that grows in the meadow. Rue, primrose, neither of them could tip the scale at seventy pounds, soaking wet. What can we do about it? I ask him, more harshly than I intended. Nothing to do. Just making conversation. Now that I know she's there, it's hard to ignore the child. She slips up and joins us at different stations. Like me, she's clever with plants, climbs swiftly, and has good aim. She can hit every target every time with a slingshot. But what's a slingshot against a 220-pound male with a sword? Back on District 12 floor, Haymitch and Effie grill us throughout breakfast and dinner about every moment of the day. What we did, who watched us, how the other tributes size up. Cinna and Portia aren't around, so there's no one to add any sanity to the meals. Not that Haymitch and Effie are fighting anymore. Instead, they seem to be of one mind, determined to whip us into shape. Full of endless directions about what we should do and not do in training. Peta is more patient, but I become fed up and angry. When we finally escape to bed that night, Peter mumbles, Someone ought to get Hamish a drink. I make a sound that's somewhere between a snort and a laugh, and I catch myself. 
that's messing with my mind too much, trying to keep straight that we're supposed to be friends and when we're not. At least when we get into the arena, I'll know where we stand. Don't. Don't pretend when there's no one around. Oh, I eat cottonous, he says tiredly. After that, we only talk in front of people. On the third day of training, they start to call us out of lunch for our private sessions with the game makers. District by district, first the boy, then the girl tribute. As usual, District 12 is slated to go last. We linger in the dining room, unsure where else to go. No one comes back once they've left. As the room empties, the pressure to appear friendly lightens. By the time they call Rue, we are left alone. We sit in silence until they summon Peta. He rises. Remember what Hamish said about being sure to throw the weights? The words come out of my mouth without permission. Thanks, I will, he says. You shoot straight? I nod. I don't know why I said anything at all. Although if I'm going to lose, I'd rather Peta win than the others. Better for our district for my mother and Prim. After about 15 minutes, they call my name. I smooth my hair, set my shoulders back, and walk into the gymnasium. Instantly, I know I'm in trouble. They've been here too long, the game makers. Sat through 23 other demonstrations. Had too much wine, most of them. More than anything, they want to go home. There's nothing I can do but continue with the plan. I walk to the archery station. Ooh, the weapons. I've been itching to get my hands on them for days. Bows made of wood and plastic and metal and materials I can't even name. Arrows with feathers cut in flawless uniform lines. I choose a bow, string it, and sling the matching quiver of bows over my shoulder. There's a shooting range, but it's much too limited. Standard bullseyes and human silhouettes. I walk to the center of the gymnasium and pick my first target. The dummy used for knife practice. Even as I pull back on the bow, I know something's wrong. The string is tighter than the one I use at home. The arrow is more rigid. I miss the dummy by a couple of inches and lose what little attention I had been commanding. For a moment, I'm humiliated, and I head back to the bullseye. I shoot again and again until I get the feel of these new weapons. Back in the center of the gymnasium, I take my initial position and skewer the dummy right through the heart. Then I sever the rope that holds the sandbag for boxing. The bag splits open as it slams to the ground. Without pausing, I shoulder roll forward, coming up on one knee, and send an arrow into one of the hanging lights high above the gymnasium floor. A shower of sparks bursts from the fixture. It's excellent shooting. I turn to the game makers. A few are nodding in approval, but the majority of them are fixated on a roast pig that has just arrived at their banquet table. Suddenly, I'm furious. That with my life on the line, they don't have the decency to pay attention to me. That I'm being upstaged by a dead pig. My heart starts to pound. I can feel my face burning. Without thinking, I pull an arrow from my quiver and send it straight at the game maker's table. I hear shouts of alarm as people stumble back. The arrow skewers the apple in the pig's mouth and pins it to the wall behind it. Everyone stares at me in disbelief. Thank you for your consideration, I say. Then I give a slight bow and walk straight toward the exit without being dismissed. Mm -hmm.
there you have it, folks. The end of chapter seven. We have two more chapters left today, and I hope you will keep with me for those. Uh, but hey, if not, it's been great to have you here. Uh, if you would like to know more about what we're doing here, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories, and I stream stories. I stream uh, right now Wednesdays and Thursdays. As a matter of fact, everyone, we are about to get started on our new Wednesday campaign. Um, I am going to... Uh, I'm, I'm going to be talking next Wednesday about the type of campaign we're going to have. It could be anything from Magical Academy to, uh, you know, Rangers out on the frontier. And uh, so if you would like to come check that out, if you would like to help to sort of vote and to guide the things that we're going to be doing for that next campaign, come hang out on Wednesday next week. And of course, Thursdays, you know what it is. It's this. It's right here. So, uh, everyone, I'm going to ask a quick Chatterbreak question. We can talk about it for a second, but uh, we're going to roll right on through to Chapter 8, I believe. Let's see. Uh, Vantive's Live says, shot the apple out of its mouth. Uh, uh, yes, she shot the apple right out of this uh, this big roast pig's mouth. Um it was, uh, it's a good moment. It's a good moment, especially in the movie. They played it quite well. Um, I've said it before. I thought they did a pretty good job with the movies for this. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the questions that we asked last week, they still stand, right? Um, I want you to keep thinking about those same questions of can PETA trust Katniss? Uh, can Katniss trust PETA is definitely what I meant to say, but technically both of those questions are important. Um, can Katniss trust PETA? Um, are they, are they allies? And, uh, you know, how much of this is, like we talked about last week, how much of this is just Katniss's raw survival instinct saying, no, don't trust anybody. Don't trust anybody completely. Not PETA, not nobody. So, something to think about. Um, but for, the, you know, something to think about and something to continue discussing. But for right now, for this particular chatter break, I do want to hit you with a different sort of question. And that is, we have seen, you know, obviously how well... Uh, Katniss participates here. We've seen how well um, she's able to make an impression at the, you know, survival skills. Um, not so much combat because she hasn't engaged with those stations very much, but survival skills. Um, she definitely makes an impression. The, uh, how do we think that Katniss is going to fare with not specifically not specifically the game makers but the the sponsors how do we think that that Katniss is going to do of course you know we we can guess a few things about how this book is going to go overall but how do we think Katniss is going to do specifically with the sponsors what is the impression that she has made um and in that same vein as we're you know as we're looking at you know what's what's the impression that Katniss makes here what are, what are the things that she has you know kept kept to herself internally versus the things that she has made very clear to outside viewers. What are the things she's let people see? How do they think that, how do we think that is going to serve her? Um, because it is a, it is a big game, all of this. And it's, it's analogous to uh, the way that sort of people um, are kind of expected to survive in some ways out in the, out in the real world. You know, this, this popularity game, uh, this game of, uh, you know, true, true, um, uh, needs, true needs. I'm talking like Maslow's hierarchy kind of needs, um, uh, shelter, food, these things being determined by, uh, aesthetics, popularity, um, public relations, right? And, uh, people who don't have strong voices speaking for them, uh, if they're expected to just speak in their own voice, we see that those people kind of fall behind, 
Because once again, we are in this, we're in this scenario, in this place where certain people have been deemed as less of a person or less of a citizen than others, right? Because you're, you're from District 12 and not the capital, you are less of something than other people. Putting that, putting that title of less than on other folks, uh, well, it's always a terror. Van says, oh, well, excuse me, Louise says, I think her drastic action is going to help her with some good sponsorship. Van says, I think sh- uh, that will be a huge weakness for her. Look how she acts. She seems bad at putting on a show. The image that everyone else has painted uh, her gives her a clear look, but whenever she has to do something on her own, she can't help being abrasive. Yep, I think you're right van like at at every turn she's gotten lucky at a few times and she's really relied on the help given by other people you know like the all of the all of all of the very positive moments that have given her kind of this good look um this this uh sort of mystique have come from Cinna or Peta or Haymitch the only thing that she really did that made an impression a positive impression of her own was to volunteer for her sister and even that's not terribly unique there are volunteers from the career districts all the time uh, Pavia says she's shown she kind of shoots first and then thinks later. I think the capital will love that. Interesting. So Kuropavia says by this, at the same time, uh, <laughs> uh, by the same virtue, uh, you think it's going to be pretty popular. Okay. Interesting. Gems says her rawness is completely new to them and I think it shocks them. People like to be shocked in entertainment. Take that as double analogy to what the author wanted to get across. Yes, Gems. Absolutely. Uh, and Louise says even drunk fog will remember seeing something like that. Uh, yeah, even even in a drunk fog, you're going to remember like having this arrow shot clean past you. Uh, and then finally, Big Mama says, hmm, so far, the only chance the potential sponsors have been able to see is the opening ceremony. The girl on fire blowing kisses. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's, it, you know, they've had this like, they've had these very narrow glimpses. But how long are those glimpses going to be able to carry Katniss before she has to rely on her own sort of like her own charisma, which we know is not, well... Maybe not super significant. We're going to find out more as a result of delving into our next chapter now. Chapter 8 As I stride toward the elevator, I fling my bow to one side and my quiver to the other. I brush past the gaping Avoxes who guard the elevators and hit the number 12 button with my fist. The doors slide together, and I zip upward. I actually make it back to my floor before the steers start running down my cheeks. I can hear the others calling for me from the sitting room, but I fly down the hall into my room, bolt the door, and fling myself onto my bed. Then I really begin to sob. Now I've done it. I've ruined everything. If I stood even a ghost of a chance, it vanished when I sent that arrow flying at the game makers. What will they do to me now? Arrest me? Execute me? Cut my tongue out and turn me into an Avox so I can await the future tributes of Panem? What was I thinking? Shooting at the game makers. 
Of course, I wasn't. I was shooting at the apple because I was so angry at being ignored. I wasn't trying to kill one of them. If I were, they'd be dead. What does it matter? It's not like I was going to win the games anyways. Who cares what they do to me? What really scares me is what they might do to my mother and Prim. How my family might suffer now because of my impulsiveness. Will they take their few belongings or send my mother to prison and Prim to the community home? Or kill them? They wouldn't kill them, would they? Why not? What do they care? I should have stayed and apologized. Or laughed like it was a big joke. Then maybe I would have found some leniency. But instead, I stalked out of the place in the most disrespectful manner possible. Hamish and Effie are knocking on my door. I shout for them to go away, and sooner or later they do. It takes at least an hour for me to cry myself out. Then I just lay curled up on the bed, stroking the silken sheets, watching the sun set over an artificial candy capital. At first, I expect guards to come for me, but as time passes, it seems less likely. I calm down. They still need a tribute from District 12, don't they? If the game makers want to punish me, they can do it publicly. They'll wait till I'm in the arena and sick, starving animals on me. You can bet they'll make sure I don't have a bow and arrow to defend myself. Before that, though, they'll give me a low score. No one in the right mind would sponsor me. That's what's going to happen tonight. Since the training isn't open to viewers, the game makers announce a score for each player. Give the audience a chance to start placing bets that will continue throughout the games. The number, which is between 1 and 12, 1 being irredeemably bad and 12 being unattainably high, signifies the promise of the tribute. The mark is not a guarantee of which person will win. It's only an indication of the potential value a tribute showed in training. Often, because of the variables in the actual arena... High-scoring tributes go down almost immediately. And a few years ago, the boy who won the games only received a three. Still, the scores can help or hurt an individual tribute in terms of sponsorship. I've been hoping my shooting skills would get me a six or a seven, even if I'm not particularly powerful. Now, I'm sure I'll have the lowest score of the 24. If no one sponsors me, my odds of staying alive decrease to almost zero. When Effie taps on the door to call me down to dinner, I decide I may as well go. The scores will be televised tonight. It's not like I can hide what happened forever. I go to the bathroom and wash my face, but it's still red and splotchy. Everyone's waiting at the table, even Cinna and Portia. I wish the stylists hadn't shown up, because for some reason I don't like the idea of disappointing them. It's as if I've thrown away all the good work they did during the opening ceremonies without a thought. I avoid looking at anyone as I take tiny spoonfuls of fish soup. The saltiness reminds me of my tears. The adults begin some chit-chat about the weather forecast, and I let my eyes meet Peta's. He raises his eyebrows. A question. What happened? I just give my head a small shake. Then, as they're serving the main course, I hear Hamish say, All right, that's enough small talk. Just how bad were you today? Peter jumps in. I don't know that it mattered. By the time I showed up, no one was even bothering to look at me. They were singing some kind of drinking song, I think. 
So I, I threw around some heavy objects so they told me I could go. That makes me feel a little better. It's not like PETA attacked the game makers, but at least he was provoked too. And you, sweetheart, says Hamish. Somehow Hamish calling me sweetheart ticks me off enough that I'm at least able to speak. I shot an arrow at the game makers. Everyone stops eating. You... what? The horror in Effie's voice confirms my worst suspicions. I shot an arrow at them. Not exactly at them. In their direction. It's like Peter said. I was shooting and they were ignoring me and I just... I lost my head. So I shot an apple out of their stupid roast pig's mouth. I say defiantly. And... What did they say? Says Sinna carefully. Nothing. Or, I don't know, I walked out after that. I say. Without being dismissed? Gasps Effie. I dismissed myself. I said. I remember how I promised Prim I would really try to win. And I feel like a ton of coal has dropped on me. Well, that's that, says Hamish. And he butters a roll. Do you think they're going to arrest me? I ask. Doubt it. There'll be a pain to replace you at this stage, says Hamish. What about my family? I say. Will they punish them? I don't think so. It wouldn't make much sense. You see, they'd have to reveal what happened in the training centre for it to have any worthwhile effect on the population. People would need to know what you did. But they can't, since it's a secret, so it'd be a waste of effort, says Hamish. More likely they're just going to make your life hell in the arena. Well, they've already promised to do that to us anyway. That's true, says Hamish. And I realise the impossible has happened. They've actually cheered me up. Hamish picks up a pork chop with his fingers, which makes Effie frown, and dunks it into his wine. He rips off a hunk of meat and starts to chuckle. <laughs> what, were, what were their faces like? I could feel the edges of my mouth tilting up. Shocked. Terrified. Ridiculous, some of them. An image pops into my mind. One man tripped backward into a bowl of punch. Hamish guffaws and we all start laughing, except Effie, although even she is suppressing a smile. It serves them right. It's their job to pay attention to you, and just because you come from District 12 is no excuse to ignore you. Then her eyes dart around as if she'd said something totally outrageous. I'm sorry, but that's what I think, she says to no one in particular. I'll get a very bad score, I say. Scores only matter if they're very good. No one pays much attention to the bad or mediocre ones. For all they know, you could be hiding your talents to get a low score on purpose. People use that strategy, says Portia. I hope that's how people interpret the four that I'm probably going to get, says Peter. If that. Really, is anything less impressive than watching a person pick up a heavy ball and throw it a couple yards? <laughs> Whatever most landed on my foot. I grin at him and realise I'm starving. I cut off a piece of pork, dunk it in mashed potatoes, and start eating. It's okay. My family's safe, and if they're safe, no real harm has been done. 
After dinner, we go to the sitting room and watch the scores announced on television. First, they show a photo of the tribute and then flash their score below it. The career tributes naturally get in the 8 to 10 range. After the other players average a 5. Surprisingly, Little Rue comes up with a 7. I don't know what she showed the judges, but she's so tiny it must have been impressive. District 12 comes up last, as usual. Peter pulls an 8, so at least a couple of the game makers must have been watching him. I dig my fingernails into my palms as my face comes up, expecting the worst. Then they're flashing the number 11 on the screen. 11. Effie Trinket lets out a squeal and everybody's slapping me on the back and cheering and congratulating me, but it doesn't seem real. There must be a mistake. How, how could that happen? I ask Hamish. I guess they like your temper, he says. They got a show to put on. They need some players with some heat. Katniss, the girl who was on fire, says Senna and gives me a hug. Oh, wait until you see your interview dress. More flames? I ask. Of a sort, he says mischievously. Peter and I congratulate each other. Another awkward moment. We've both done well, but what does that mean for the other? I escape to my room as quickly as possible and burrow down under the covers. The stress of the day, particularly the crying, has worn me out. I drift off, reprieved, relieved, and with the number 11 still flashing behind my eyelids. At dawn, I lie in bed for a while, watching the sun come up on a beautiful morning. It's Sunday, a day off at home. I wonder if Gail's in the woods yet. Usually we devote all of Sunday to stocking up for the week, rising early, hunting and gathering, then trading at the hob. I think of Gail without me. Both of us can hunt alone, but we're better as a pair, particularly if we're trying for bigger game, but also in littler things. Having a partner to lighten the load could even make the arduous task of filling my family's table enjoyable. I'd been struggling along on my own for about six months when I first ran into Gale in the woods. It was a Sunday in October, the air cool and pungent with dying things. I'd spent the morning competing with the squirrels for nuts and the slightly warmer afternoon wading in shallow ponds harvesting Katniss. The only meat I had shot was a squirrel that had practically run over my toes in its quest for acorns. But the animals would still be afoot when the snow buried my other food sources. Having strayed further afield than usual, I was hurrying back home, lugging my burlap sacks when I came across a dead rabbit. It was hanging by its neck from a thin wire a foot above my head. About fifteen yards away, it was another. I recognized the twitch-up snares because my father had used them. When the prey's caught, it's yanked into the air out of reach of other hungry animals. I'd been trying to use snares all summer with no success, so I couldn't help dropping my sacks to examine this one. My fingers were just on the wire above one of the rabbits when a voice rang out, That's dangerous. I jumped several feet back as Gale materialized from behind a tree. He must have been watching me the whole time. He was only fourteen, but he'd cleared six feet and was as good as an adult to me. I'd seen him around the seam and at school. And one other time. He'd lost his father in the same blast that killed mine. 
In January, I'd stood by while he received his Medal of Valor in the Justice Building, another oldest child with no father. I remembered his two little brothers clutching his mother, a woman whose swollen belly announced she was just days from giving birth. "'What's your name?' he said, coming over and disengaging the rabbit from the snare. He had another three hanging from his belt. "'Katniss?' I said, barely audible. "'Well, Katniss, stealing's punishable by death, or haven't you heard?' he says. "'Katniss,' I say louder, "'and I wasn't stealing it. I just wanted to look at your snare. Mine never catch anything.' He scowled at me, not convinced. So, where'd you get the squirrel? I shot it. I pulled my bow off my shoulder. I was still using the small version my father had made me, but I'd been practicing with the full-sized one when I could. I was hoping that by spring I might be able to bring down some bigger game. Gail's eyes fastened on the bow. Can I see that? I handed it over. Just remember, stealing's punishable by death. That was the first time I ever saw him smile. It transformed him from someone menacing to someone you wished you knew. But it took several months before I returned that smile. We talked hunting then. I told him I might be able to get him a bow if he had something to trade. Not food. I wanted knowledge. I wanted to set my own snares that caught a belt of fat rabbits in one day. He agreed something might be worked out. As the seasons went by, we grudgingly began to share our knowledge. Our weapons, our secret places that were thick with wild plums or turkeys. He taught me snares and fishing. I showed him what plants to eat and eventually gave him one of our precious bows. And then one day, without either of us saying it, we became a team. Dividing the work and the spoils. Making sure that both of our families had food. Gale gave me a sense of security I'd lacked since my father's death. His companionship replaced the long, solitary hours in the woods. I became a much better hunter when I didn't have to look over my shoulder constantly, when someone was watching my back. But he turned into so much more than a hunting partner. He became my confidant, someone with whom I could share my thoughts, even if I could never voice them inside the fence. In exchange, he trusted me with his. Being out in the woods with Gale, sometimes I was actually happy. I call him my friend, but in the last year it seemed too casual a word for what Gale is to me. A pang of longing shoots through my chest. If only he was with me now. But of course, I don't want that. I don't want him in the arena where he'd be dead in a few days. I just, I just miss him. And I hate being so alone. Does he miss me? He must. I think of the eleven flashing under my name last night. I know exactly what he'd say to me. Well, there's some room for improvement there. And he'd give me a smile and I'd return it without hesitating now. I can't help comparing what I have with Gale to what I'm pretending to have with Peta. How I never question Gale's motives, while I do nothing but doubt the latter's. Not a fair comparison, really. Gale and I were thrown together by a mutual need to survive. Peta and I know the other survival means our own death. How do you sidestep that? 
Effie's knocking at the door, reminding me there's another big, 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 big day ahead. Tomorrow night will be our televised interviews. I guess the whole team will have their hands full readying us for that. I get up and take a quick shower, being a bit more careful about the buttons I hit, and head down to the dining room. Peta, Effie, and Hamish are huddled around a table talking in hushed voices. That seems odd, but hunger wins out over curiosity, and I load up my plate with breakfast before I join them. The stew is made with tender chunks of lamb and dried plums today, perfect on the bed of wild rice. I've shoveled about halfway through the mound when I realize no one's talking. I take a big gulp of orange juice and wipe my mouth. So, what's going on? You're coaching us through interviews today, right? That's right, says Hamish. You don't have to wait until I'm done. I can listen and eat at the same time, I say. Well, there's been a change of plans about our current approach, says Hamish. What's that? I ask. I'm not sure what our current approach is. Trying to appear mediocre in front of other tributes is the last bit of strategy I remember. Hamish shrugs. Peter is asked to be coached separately. Now, why would PETA want to be coached separately? Van says, I can't get a read on PETA. His actions seem all over the place. Jim says, and Katniss is shocked. Yes, a good question. A good question. Okay, now, folks, what do we think? What do we think is the strategy here? Why does PETA want to be coached separately? What's the deal? What are these characters doing? Um, and that's kind of the lens that I want to look at this through as I send you all into our chatter break. I am going to take a quick five-minute break. Um, I am going to have the timer up on screen, but I'm going to leave you with this question before we come back, uh, before I head into my break, and then we will come back. We'll do a tiny bit of review. I'll try for 60 seconds, uh, and then we'll be going into our last chapter for tonight's stream, chapter number nine. If y'all are wondering where you can find these videos, if you're coming in late or, you know, this is your first time here, go ahead and look on wherever you find your podcasts, Flying Sidecar. Flying Sidecar is the place to find the back episodes, um... We've had to uh, pull down some of them, but uh, all of the Hunger Games ones are currently online, as are all of the uh, Percy Jackson and the Olympians ones. So you'll be able to find those there. Uh, if you want to find out more, head to the Discord. Discord always has the most updated information. I, I love Discord, and I love uh, using it for communication. It's excellent. Uh, and you can find the Playlists channel there. So, everyone, what is PETA's plan? Um, and, and even more so, what is motivating PETA? We've talked about, like, rules and rule-breaking, right? We've talked about people's own personal rules for themselves. You know, Katniss clearly has this sort of unspoken rule for herself of not trusting people, right? She will transact with people, but she doesn't trust people. What are the personal guiding principles? What are these internal values that are, that are guiding PETA? What why is PETA doing the things that he's doing? There's our Chatterbrick question, and we'll see you all in five minutes. And 
And we are back, folks. Thank you so very much for joining me today on Flying Sidecar. That's right. This is our Thursday show. Uh, let's talk about our chatter break question, huh? And I see that we have got Hearthook uh, in. Hearthook has officially submitted the happy birthday song voice. All right, Hearthook, I want to wish you a very happy birthday. And... Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear heart hook. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, heart hook. From Professor Lupin. <laughs> there you go. Happy birthday, Heart Hook. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for hanging out. And thank you for being here for such a long time. Uh, Heart Hook, you're, you're one of our like longest-running live listeners. Uh, you've been here with us for quite a while. And so, Heart Hook, thank you so much for uh, sharing today with us and for sharing show, so many days uh, in the past few years with us. Thank you a bunch. Um, let's talk about our chatter break question. Gems says, it seems like Katniss is good at hiding her feelings and bottling them up, but PETA can't do that. He hides himself by camouflaging himself in his surroundings. Okay, now that's, that's a pretty good take right there, actually. I like that a lot, Gems. I like that quite a bit. This idea that, uh, you know, this is just how, this is how PETA hides. Um, by by blending in. Not by disappearing, but by by looking like the rest of things. Um, you know, by by putting on the smiles that he sees around him, by, you know, smiling and waving when people smile and wave at him. I think, you know, if I had to if I had to be sort of like introspective, I think that's probably how I do it as well. My natural instinct is not so much to like disappear as much as it is to emulate the things I see around me if I'm trying to just sort of blend in. You know, if I don't want to be seen, I make myself just look like everything else. I don't make myself unseeable. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that's a good take, Gems. I like that. Uh, let's see what other folks are feeling about it. Uh, Van says, I can't get a read on PETA. His actions put him all over the place. He seems sneaky, other times genuine, sometimes aloof. I'd say the 11 from Katniss scared him, but he already knew everything she was capable of. Peter's a riddle. Dude's so inconsistent with how he acts, the choices he makes, what he says to Katniss. He seems like an open book sometimes and a schemer other times. And just to be clear, I am reading through, like, I'm, I'm picking out all of Van's sort of answers. And I'm going to do this for other people as well. But uh, Van continues on and says, I think what makes, uh, oh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so we're going to go back and, and catch the actual discussion here. Um, let's see, let's see. Uh, who was it? Gwen Dog says, I don't think Peter shares the whole actually hate each other feeling. Okay, so Gwen is thinking this might this might not be a ruse for him. It might just sort of be comfort. I know for me it would probably be comforting to just like try and have a normal relationship with a person, even if it you know even if it's going to be dissolved when we actually go to the arena. I don't know. I could be wrong about that too. Um, uh, let's see. Jem says I think both Katniss and Peter shoot for integrity, but their ideas of what integrity means and how to get there are opposites. I like that. It's another great take. Jem says, Peter can't hide what he thinks or feels by bottling it up like Katniss does, so he does it by camouflaging himself in his surroundings. I think so. I think you're right. Gwendog says, I think when Peter seems to be anything but genuine, he's doing it just to placate Katniss. I think so. I think you're right. 
I think we got some good takes here in chat, folks. I like it a lot. Uh, Van says, I think that makes a lot of sense. Even though he's inconsistent, I think that's because sometimes he's himself and other times he's playing the game. I just don't know which one is which. (laughs) Oh, man. Gwen says, I remember feeling more confused about his intentions in the movie, more so than right now, slash in the book. I gotcha. I gotcha. Excellent. Well, that means that we've got some good intrigue going on. It's not confusion. It's good intrigue. And I really like that feeling. Um, So... Let's get in and uh, maybe find some answers to some of these things, shall we? Let's head on to chapter nine, our final chapter for the day. Chapter 9. Betrayal. That's the first thing I feel, which is ludicrous. For there to be betrayal, there would have to have been trust first, between Peta and me. And trust has not been part of the agreement. We're tributes. But the boy who risked a beating to give me bread, the one who steadied me in the chariot, who covered for me with the red-headed Avox girl, who insisted Hamish knows my hunting skills... Was there some part of me that couldn't help trusting him? On the other hand, I'm relieved we can stop the pretense of being friends. Obviously, whatever thin connection we'd foolishly formed had been severed. High time, too. The games begin in two days, and trust will only be a weakness. Whatever triggered Peter's decision, and I suspect it had to do with my outperforming him in training, I should be nothing but grateful for it. Maybe he's finally accepted the fact that sooner or later we openly acknowledge we are enemies, the better. Good, I say. So, what's the schedule? You each have four hours with Effie for presentation and four with me for content, says Hamish. You start with Effie, Katniss. I can't imagine what Effie will have to teach me that will take four hours, but she's got me working down to the last minute. We go to my rooms and she puts me in a full-length gown and high-heeled shoes, not the ones I'll be wearing for the actual interview, and instructs me on walking. The shoes are the worst part. I've never worn high heels and I can't get used to essentially wobbling around on the balls of my feet. But Effie runs around in them full-time and I'm determined if she can do it, so can I. The dress poses another problem. It keeps tangling around my shoes, so of course I hitch it up, and then Effie swoops down on me like a hawk, smacking my hands and yelling, Not above the ankle! When I finally conquer walking, they're still sitting. Posture. Apparently I have a tendency to duck my head. Eye contact, hand gestures, and smiling. Smiling is mostly about smiling more. Effie makes me say a hundred banal phrases, starting with a smile, while smiling, or ending with a smile. By lunch, the muscles in my cheeks are twitching from overuse. That's the best I can do, Effie says with a sigh. Just remember, Katniss, you want the audience to like you. And you don't think they will, I ask. 
whether you glare at them the entire time, why don't you save that for the arena? Instead, think of yourself as being among friends, says Effie. They're betting on how long I live, I burst out. They're not my friends. Try to pretend, snaps Effie. Then she composes herself and beams at me. See? Like this. I'm smiling at you even though you're aggravating me. As it feels very convincing. I'm going down to eat. I kick off my heels and stomp down to the dining room, hiking my skirt up to my thighs. Peta and Hamage seem in pretty good mood, so I'm thinking the content session should be an improvement over the morning. I couldn't be more wrong. After lunch, Hamage takes me to the sitting room, directs me to the couch, and then just frowns at me for a while. What? I finally ask. I'm trying to figure out what to do with you. How are we going to present you? Are you going to be charming, aloof, fierce? So far you're shining like a star. You volunteered to save your sister. Sinna made you look unforgettable. You got the top training score. People are intrigued, but no one knows who you are. The impression you make tomorrow will decide exactly what I can get you in terms of sponsors, says Hamish. Having watched the tribute interviews all my life, I know there's truth to what he's saying. If you appeal to the crowd, either by being humorous or brutal or eccentric, you gain favor. What's Peter's approach? Or am I not allowed to know? I say. Likeable! He's got a sort of self-deprecating humor, naturally, says Hamish. Whereas when you open your mouth, you come across more as... Sullen and hostile. I do not, I say. Please, I don't know where you pulled that cheery, wavy girl in the chariot from, but I haven't seen her before or since, says Hamish. And you give me so many reasons to be cheery, I counter. But you don't have to please me. I'm not going to sponsor you. So pretend I'm the audience, says Hamish. Delight me. Fine, I snarl. Hamish takes the role of the interviewer, and I try to answer his questions in a winning fashion. But I can't. I'm too angry with Hamish for what he said, and I still have to answer the questions. All I can think about is how unjust the whole thing is. The Hunger Games. Why am I hopping around like some trained dog trying to please people I hate? The longer the interview goes on, the more my fury seems to rise to the surface, until I'm literally spitting out answers at him. All right, all right, enough. Gotta find another angle. Not only are you hostile, I don't know anything about you. I've asked you 50 questions, and I still have no sense of your life, your family, what you care about. They want to know about you, Katniss. But I don't want them to. They've already taken my future. They can't have the things that mattered to me in the past, I say. Well, then lie. Make something up, says Hamish. I'm not good at lying, I say. Well, you better land fast. I've got about as much charm as a dead slug, says Hamish. Ouch. That hurts. Even Hamish must know he's been too harsh because his voice softens. Oh, here's an idea. Try acting humble. Humble? I echo. 
You can't believe um, a little girl from District 12 has done this well. Whole thing's been more than you could ever have dreamed of. Talk about sinners' clothes. How nice the people are. Talk about how, how the city amazes you. If you won't talk about yourself, at least compliment the audience. Just keep turning it back around, alright? Gush! The next hours are agonising. At once, it's clear I cannot gush. We try playing the cocky bit, but I just don't have the arrogance. Apparently, I'm too vulnerable for ferocity. I'm not witty, funny, sexy, or mysterious. By the end of the session, I am no one at all. Hamish started drinking somewhere around witty, and a nasty edge has crept into his voice. I give up, sweetheart. Just answer the questions, try not to let the audience see how openly you despise them. I have dinner that night in my room, ordering an outrageous number of delicacies, eating myself sick, and then taking out my anger at Haymitch, at the Hunger Games, at every living being in the capital by smashing dishes around my room. When the girl with the red hair comes in to turn down the bed, her eyes widen at the mess. Just leave it, I yell at her. Just leave it alone. I hate her too, with her knowing, reproachful eyes that call me a coward. A monster, a puppet of the capital, both now and then. For her, justice must finally be happening. At least my death will help pay for the life of the boy in the woods. But instead of fleeing the room, the girl closes the door behind her and goes to the bathroom. She comes back with a damp cloth and wipes my face gently, then cleans the blood from a broken plate off of my hands. Why is she doing this? Why am I letting her? I should have tried to save you, I whisper. She shakes her head. Does this mean we were right to stand by? That she's forgiven me? No, it was wrong, I say. She taps her lips with her fingers and then points to my chest. I think she means that I just would have ended up in Avox too. Probably would have. In Avox or dead. I spend the next hour helping the red-headed girl clean the room. When all the garbage has been dropped down at disposal and the food cleaned away, she turns down my bed. I crawl in between the sheets like a five-year-old and let her tuck me in. Then she goes... I want her to stay until I fall asleep. To be there when I wake up. I want the protection of this girl, even though she never had mine. In the morning, it's not the girl, but my prep team who are hanging over me. My lessons with Effie and Hamish are over. This day belongs to Sinna. He's my last hope. Maybe he can make me look so wonderful no one will care what comes out of my mouth. The team works on me until late afternoon, turning my skin into glowing satin, stenciling patterns on my arms, painting flame designs on my twenty perfect nails. Then Vinia goes to work on my hair, weaving strands of red into a pattern that begins at my left ear, wraps around my head, and then falls in one braid down my right shoulder. They erase my face with a layer of pale makeup and draw my features back out. Huge dark eyes, full red lips, lashes that throw off bits of light when I blink. 
Finally, they cover my entire body in a powder that makes me shimmer in gold dust. Then Cinna enters with what I assume is my dress, but I can't see it because it's covered. Close your eyes, he orders. I can feel the silken inside as I slip it over my naked body. Then the weight. It must be forty pounds. I clutch Octavia's hand as I blindly step into my shoes, glad that they're at least two inches lower than the pair Effie had me practice in. There's some adjusting and fidgeting. Then silence. Can I open my eyes? I ask. Yes, says Cinna. Open them. The creature standing before me in the full-length mirror has come from another world. Where skin shimmers and eyes flash, and apparently they make their clothes from jewels. Because my dress... Oh, my dress is entirely covered in reflective precious gems. Red and yellow and white with bits of blue that accent the tips of the flame design. The slightest movement gives the impression I'm engulfed in tongues of flame. I'm not pretty... I'm not beautiful. I am as radiant as the sun. For a while, we all just stare at me. Oh, Cinna, I finally whisper. Thank you. Twirl for me, he says. I hold out my arms and spin in a circle. The prep team screams in admiration. Zinna dismisses the team and has me move around in the dress and shoes, which are infinitely more manageable than Effie's. The dress hangs in such a way that I don't have to lift the skirt when I walk, leaving me with one less thing to worry about. So, all ready for the interview, then? Asks Zinna. I can see by his expression he's been talking to Haymitch. That he knows how dreadful I am. I'm... Awful. Haymitch called me a dead slug. No matter what we tried, I, I couldn't do it. I just can't be one of those people he wants me to be, I say. Sina thinks about this for a moment. Why don't you just be yourself? Myself? That's no good either. Haymitch says I'm sullen and hostile, I say. Well, you are. Around Haymitch says Sinna with a grin. I don't find you so. The prep team adores you. You even won over the game makers. And as for the citizens of the capital, well, they can't help talking about you. No one can help but admire your spirit. My spirit. This is a new thought. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it suggests I'm a fighter. In a sort of brave way. It's not as if I'm never friendly. Okay, maybe I don't go around loving everybody I meet. Maybe my smiles are hard to come by, but I do care for some people. Cinna takes my icy hands in his warm ones. Suppose when you answer the questions, you think you're addressing a friend back home. Who would your best friend be? Asks Cinna. Gail, I say instantly. Only it doesn't make any sense, Cinna. I'd never be telling Gail these things about me. He already knows them. What about me? Could you think of me as a friend? Asks Cinna. Of all the people I've met since I left home, Cinna is by far my favorite. I liked him right off, and he hasn't disappointed me yet. I think so, but... 
I'll be sitting in the main platform with the other stylists. You'll be able to look right at me. When you're asked a question, find me and answer it as honestly as possible, says Senna. Even if what I think is horrible, I ask, because it might be, really. Especially if what you think is horrible, says Senna. You'll try it? I nod. It's a plan, or at least a straw to grasp at. Too soon, it's time to go. The interviews take place on a stage constructed in front of the training center. Once I leave my room, it will be only minutes until I'm in front of the crowd. The cameras, all of Pan Am. As Cinna turns the doorknob, I stop his hand. Cinna! I'm completely overcome with stage fright. Remember, they already love you, he says gently. Just be yourself. We meet up with the rest of the District 12 crowd at the elevator. Portia and her gang have been hard at work. Peta looks striking in a black suit with flame accents. While we look well together, it's a relief not to be dressed identically. Haymitch and Effie are all fancied up for the occasion. I avoid Haymitch, but accept Effie's compliments. Effie can be tiresome and clueless, but she's not destructive like Haymitch. When the elevator opens, the other tributes are being lined up to take the stage. All 24 of us sit in a big arc throughout the interviews. I'll be last, or second to last, since the girl tribute precedes the boy from each district. How I wish I could be first and get the whole thing out of the way. Now I'll have to listen to how witty, funny, humble, fierce, and charming everyone else is before I go up. Plus, the audience will start to get bored, just like the game makers did. And I can't exactly shoot an arrow into the crowd to get their attention. Right before we parade onto the stage, Haymitch comes up behind Peta and me and growls, Remember, you're still a happy pair, so act like it. What? I, I thought we abandoned that when Peta asked for separate coaching. But I guess that was a private thing, not a public thing. Anyway, there's not much chance for interaction now as we walk single file to our seats and take our places. Just stepping on the stage makes my breathing rapid and shallow. I can feel my pulse pounding in my temples. It's a relief to get to my chair because between the heels and my legs shaking, I'm afraid I'll trip. Although evening is falling, the city circle is brighter than a summer's day. An elevated seating unit has been set up for prestigious guests with the stylist commanding the front row. The cameras will turn to them when the crowd is reacting to their handiwork. A large balcony off a building to the right has been reserved for the game makers. Television crews have claimed most of the other balconies. But the city circle and the avenues that feed into it are completely packed with people. Standing room only. At homes and community halls around the country, every television set is turned on. Every citizen of Pan Am is tuned in. There will be no blackouts tonight. Caesar Flickerman, the man who has hosted the interviews for more than 40 years, bounces onto the stage. It's a little scary because his appearance has been virtually unchanged during all that time. Same face under a coating of pure white makeup. Same hairstyle that he dyes a different color for each Hunger Games. Same ceremonial suit, midnight blue dotted with a thousand tiny electric bulbs that twinkle like stars. They do surgery in the capital to make people appear younger and thinner. In District 12, looking old is something of an achievement, since so many people die early. You see an elderly person, you want to congratulate them on their longevity. 
ask the secret of their survival. A plump person is envied because they aren't scraping by like the majority of us. But here it's different. Wrinkles aren't desirable. A round belly isn't a sign of success. This year, Caesar's hair is powder blue and his eyelids and lips are coated in the same hue. He looks freakish, but less freakish than he did last year. When his color was crimson, he seemed to be bleeding. Caesar tells a few jokes to warm up the audience, then gets down to business. The girl tribute from District 1, looking provocative in a see-through gold gown, steps up to the center of the stage to join Caesar for her interview. You could tell her mentor didn't have any trouble coming up with an angle for her. With that flowing blonde hair, emerald green eyes, her body tall and lush, she's sexy all the way. Each interview only lasts three minutes. Then a buzzer goes off and the next tribute is up. I'll say this for Caesar, he really does do his best to make the tributes shine. He's friendly, he tries to set the nervous ones at ease, laughs at lame jokes, and can turn a weak response into a memorable one by the way that he reacts. I sit like a lady, the way Effie showed me as the districts slip by. Two, three, four. Everyone seems to be playing up some angle. The monstrous boy from District 2 is a ruthless killing machine. The fox-faced girl from District 5 is sly and elusive. I spotted Cinna as soon as he took his place, but even his presence cannot relax me. Eight, nine, ten. The crippled boy from ten is very quiet. My palms are sweating like crazy, but the jeweled dress isn't absorbent and they skid right off as I try to dry them. Eleven. Rue, who's dressed in a gossamer gown complete with wings, flutters her way to Caesar. A hush falls over the crowd at the sight of this magical wisp of a tribute. Caesar is very sweet with her, complimenting her seven in training, an excellent score for one so small. When he asks her what her greatest strength in the arena will be, she doesn't hesitate. I'm very hard to catch, she says in a tremulous voice. And if they can't catch me, they can't kill me. So don't count me out. I wouldn't in a million years, says Caesar encouragingly. The boy tribute from District 11, Thresh, has the same dark skin as Rue. But the resemblance stops there. He's one of the giants, probably six and a half feet tall and built like an ox. But I notice he rejected the invitations from the career tributes to join their crowd. Instead, he's been very solitary, speaking to no one, showing little interest in training. Even so, he scored a ten, and it's not hard to imagine he impressed the game makers. He ignores Caesar's attempts at banter and answers with a yes or no, or just remains silent. If only I was his size, I could get away with sullen and hostile, and it would be just fine. I bet half of the sponsors are at least considering him. If I had any money, I'd be betting on him myself. And then they're calling Katniss Everdeen. And I feel myself as if in a dream, standing and making my way to center stage. I shake Caesar's outstretched hand, and he has at least the good grace not to immediately wipe it off on his own suit. So, Katniss, the capital must be quite a change for you from District 12. What's impressed you most since you arrived here? Says Caesar. What? What did he say? It's as if the words make no sense. My mouth has gone dry as sawdust. I desperately find Cinna in the crowd and lock eyes with him. I imagine the words coming from his lips. What's impressed you most since you arrived here? 
I rack my brain for something that made me happy here. Be honest, I think. Be honest. The lamb stew? I get out. Caesar laughs, and vaguely I realize some of the audience has joined in. Oh, the one with the dried plums? Asks Caesar. I nod. Oh, I eat it by the bucketful. He turns sideways to the audience in horror, hand on his stomach. It doesn't show, does it? They shout reassurances at him and applaud. This is what I mean about Caesar. He tries to help you out. Now, Katniss, he says confidentially. When you came out in the opening ceremonies, my heart actually stopped. What did you think of that costume? Sinner raises an eyebrow at me. Be honest. You mean, after I got over my fear of being burned alive? I ask. A big laugh. A real one from the audience. (laughs) Yes, start then, says Caesar. Senna, my friend, he knows, but I should tell him anyway. I thought Senna was brilliant, and it was the most gorgeous costume I've ever seen, and I couldn't believe I was wearing it. I can't believe I'm wearing this either. I lift up my skirt and spread it out. I mean, look at it. As the audience oohs and ahs, I see Sinna make the tiniest circular motion with his finger, but I know what he's saying. Twirl for me. I spin in a circle once, and the reaction is immediate. Oh, do that again, says Caesar. So I lift up my arms and spin around and around, letting the skirt fly out, letting the dress engulf me in flames. The audience breaks into cheers. When I stop, I clutch Caesar's arm. Don't stop, he says. I have to. I'm dizzy. I'm also giggling, which I think I've done maybe never in my lifetime. But the nerves and the spinning have got to me. Caesar wraps a protective arm around me. Don't worry, I've got you. Can't have you following in your mentor's footsteps. Everyone's hooting as the cameras find Haymitch, who is by now famous for his head dive at the reaping. And he waves them good-naturedly and points back to me. It's all right, Caesar reassures the crowd. She's safe with me. So how about that training score? Eleven! Give us a hint what happened in there. I glance at the game makers in the balcony and bite my lip. Um, all I can say is, I think it was a first. The cameras are right at the game makers, who are chuckling and nodding. Oh, you're killing us, says Caesar, as if in actual pain. Details, details! I address the balcony. I'm not supposed to talk about it, right? The game maker who fell in the punch bowl shouts out, She's not! Thank you, I say. Sorry, my lips are sealed. Well, okay, let's go back then to the moment they called your sister's name at the reaping, says Caesar. His mood is quieter now. And you volunteered. Can you tell us about her? No. No, not all of you. But maybe Cinna. I don't think I'm imagining the sadness on his face. Her name is... Prim. She's just twelve. And I love her more than anything. You could hear a pin drop in City Circle now. What did she say to you? After the reaping? Caesar asks. Be honest. Be honest. I swallow hard. 
She asked me to try really hard to win. The audience is frozen, hanging on my every word. And what did you say? Prompts Caesar gently. But instead of warmth, I feel an icy rigidity take over my body. My muscles tense as they do before a kill. When I speak, my voice seems to have dropped an octave. I swore I would. I bet you did, says Caesar, giving me a squeeze. The buzzer goes off. Sorry, but we're out of time. Best of luck, Katniss Everdeen. Tribute from District 12. The applause continues long after I'm seated. I look to Sinna for reassurance. He gives me a subtle thumbs up. I'm still in a daze for the first part of Peta's interview. He has the audience from the get-go, though. I can hear them laughing, shouting out. He plays up the baker's son thing, comparing the tributes to breads from their districts. Then he has a funny anecdote about the perils of the capital showers. Tell me something, do I smell like roses? He asks Caesar, and there's a whole run where they take turns sniffing each other that brings down the house. I'm coming back into focus when Caesar asks him if he's got a girlfriend back home. Peter hesitates, then gives an unconvincing shake of his head. Oh, a handsome lad like you. There must be some special girl. Come on, what's her name? Asks Caesar. Peter sighs. Well, there is this one girl. I've had a crush on her ever since I can remember. But I'm pretty sure she didn't know I was alive until the reaping. Sounds of sympathy from the crowd. Unrequited love they can relate to. Does she have another fellow? Asks Caesar. I don't know, but a lot of the boys like her, says Peter. So, here's what you do. You win, you go home. She can't turn you down then, huh? Says Caesar, encouragingly. I don't think it's gonna work out. Winning, uh, it won't help in my case, says Peter. Well, why ever not? Says Caesar, mystified. Peter blushes, beat red, and stammers out, "Cause, because she came here with me." What a twist. What a twist. Jem says, I can't believe how absolutely perfect this is as a game show. Stunning, perfect, absolutely spectacular, and then the realizing that the game is killing people. Right? And I mean, that is, I think, one of the big points it's trying to make here is that we have so much gamified the the concept of like struggling for resources, right? It's clearly artificial, as we see here in the Hunger Games. The the, the capital thrives while the rest of these districts. Uh, we, we can see all of the the um, uh, uh, tributes from these other districts. They are being you know pretty much starved out. It's artificial, and you know I think we can see a lot of that in our day to day as well. There are plenty of people with plenty of resources. Just arbitrarily, we choose to 
let those resources sit with a very small number of people rather than letting the uh, rather than sort of treating people equally rather than than handing that out and we have so much gamified this pursuit of like the the hustle right every time I hear that word like the hustle that to me is just the it's the gamification it's this idea that like oh yeah no we have turned success into a game show right it just just it's just me with my stupid swagger and my three button suit and my shoulder shimmy and my microphone with the long long stem and I hold it up to my mouth and I say hey you want to compete to not starve today all the all the there's there's so much nonsense I see on like Instagram and and you know people trying to be famous on YouTube what have you that I think kind of all comes down to the same idea of hey what's the way to what what is the way to survive in the world because hard work isn't going to do it we we have we have so far seen that hard work we're not going to we are not going to um uh we're not going to exchange hard work for success we're going to sort of keep success for something else and at least in the in the United States it seems like western culture just in general has said i think we're going to make it kind of a lottery a big game show, a big reality show wherein you are, your success and your ability to survive and to thrive is going to be determined not by your hard work because there are so, there are way too many people working hard out there, gang, uh, who are not thriving. The, the, uh, the exchange for, for uh, a comfortable life is not hard work. It's this game show. Uh, and I think uh, that is something we're going to have to keep track of as we continue to read here. We have just finished part one, the tributes. Chapter 10 begins part two, and we're going to start reading that next week. Everyone, thank you so much, very much for joining me here. If you want to find the back episodes of this, go ahead and head to Flying Sidecar. That is our Thursday show here where a, it is a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. And... Uh, this, I mean, this twist is not nothing, huh? Van Saves Live says, oh, snap. Denisha says, ah. Missy says, oh. Crow Plavia says, oh, man. Bum, bum, bum. Gwen Duck says, ooh. Maria says, what? <laughs> when I started that, I didn't think I was going to go through all of them, but I did by the end there. Um, Jem says, and I bet that's exactly why PETA pulled back. And yes, the Chatterbreak questions that we began earlier today, we've got a little bit more insight into why PETA is behaving the way he's behaving. We still don't know entirely why. Frankly, now we might have even more questions about that. Different questions, to be sure, but certainly plenty of them. Van says, this is flying by. Yeah, I know. It does feel like we're running through this pretty quickly, but, you know, uh, 10 to 12,000 words per stream. Uh, at a comfortable uh, pace, and uh, yeah, today was twelve thousand words, um, and it all it all hovers right right in there. I think the next one is going to be the first part of, I guess, the first stream of part three is going to be another kind of longish one. Otherwise, like, just really really comfortable reading these books on a streaming basis. Uh, Luis says from crazy hair and tattoos and piercing to everyone trying to be famous and most everyone trying to make a buck. Yeah, I think you know this is this is. Part of the reason why I'm excited to be talking about this book right now, because it doesn't shy away from some of these ideas, and it it really actively wants to try and discuss them. Um, you know, just I'll I'll just say it one more time, even though I think we've had kind of I've said most of my piece on it. It is a world, and I'm not going to tell you whether I'm talking about the book or the real one. It is a world of contrived scarcity in which. You sort of promise people that hard work is the way to be successful and to, you know, keep yourself safe and healthy and those people that you care about. 
Um, but really, it comes down to an enormous uh, uh, sort of <laughs> uh, an enormous game show. An enormous game show. That's what it really comes down to. It's very silly. Very silly. A very silly and uh, destructive way to treat kind of the super organism that is humanity. Certainly not sustainable. I think we can agree about that. Uh, folks, Gems, okay, so Gem says, character analysis from what we've seen uh, past and present. I believe he's absolutely telling the truth. Okay, so that's kind of the big question. If we if we drill in and talk, you know, we, we've discussed some of the themes here, right? We've talked about um, uh, the the game show of it all. And I think that is one of the themes that we're seeing in this book is that sort of the, the theme of um, uh, gamification of survival. We've seen how the, the people who are in charge have clearly turned survival into something that is, is not to be worked toward, but it's something to be almost mocked, right? Uh, this, this, this process of trying to gain sponsors and such. It's, it's not about who you are or how skilled you are. Cause we know that Katniss has, you know, Katniss has quite a bit of, of skill in the way of survival, right? If you just put her out in the, in the middle of a wilderness, she could absolutely survive on her own of any of these folks. She's probably one of the most adept at it, but it's not about that. Um, she expresses it. Haymitch talks about it. Effie talks about it. I think even Cinna mentions it one or, once or twice. It doesn't matter. If you don't have sponsors, it doesn't matter. It's not about your skills. It's about who likes you. It's about which of the people that sort of arbitrarily are holding on to the resources are willing to give you resources. You can see why uh, I'll just say the later books proceed as they do. Uh, but we won't get into that just yet. Um, so there's a good theme discussion, but this discussion of characters, I think when we're talking character um, uh, and characters, Katniss, I think, has been a pretty open book to us so far. I think we're getting a pretty accurate read on who Katniss is. I think Katniss is fairly honest with herself. She might not be she might not be entirely correct about herself, right? We, we've had this odd little interaction with um, Peta, wherein he mentions that she doesn't know the effect that she has on people. But I don't think Katniss is lying to herself about herself, right? Katniss isn't like, Katniss doesn't know this thing about herself and just chooses to say, well, no, I'm not flawed in that way. Or, oh no, this is, you know, this is different than, than who I really am. I think she is how she sees herself. And I think she reliably communicates to us as an audience those things. I think the things that, that Katniss tells us about herself, she believes about herself. Um, and she's been a pretty open book thus far. She's said a lot about herself. She's talked about how, uh, you know, she doesn't trust people. She considers the, the, the relationships that she has back in her home district to be pretty transactional. She talks about how when she, when she is dealing with other people from District 12, they like her well enough. And that is built on not the fact that, you know, she has like some inherently likable quality, but because she brings in good game. Uh, she's a good hunter uh, and she can be relied upon. And then, you know, maybe something of, uh, you know, what her father's relationship was with them. A similar sense of credibility. It's about what she can provide for them, not about who she is. Peta is a little tougher, huh? We know a lot about Katniss. Peta is a little tougher. Peta's doing a lot of things here that are hard to read. Is Peta just 
great at the show? Or is PETA genuinely someone who sort of wants to get along with Katniss? And I think, you know, it's, of course, right now we've had just the biggest question ever dropped on us. Um while also being potentially the biggest answer. If you were to take this this comment about, you know, basically Katniss being this person I've had a crush on for years, if we're to take that as true, then that answers all of our questions. But are we? Are we going to take this as true? Is this a true thing? Is this real from PETA? Because if it's not an answer, it's a massive, massive question, right? What is this angle he's playing? What is this wild, wild decision that he has made? I mean presumably, with the approval and or help from Haymitch. Van Saves Live says, dude is an enigma. He's certainly doing his best to be one, right? But you got to admit, all of the gasps, the oohs and ahs from chat, I think that very likely echoes what the reaction would have been from this crowd out here listening to these interviews. Whether or not this is true, it plays the game perfectly. It plays the game perfectly. It has the relatability that can draw people in, even those people who have never fought in a Hunger Games here in the capital. It's got that that one thing that so, so many people can relate to. Just this... This this uh, star-crossed lover thing. And it's not even that. It's it's unrequited love. It's it is love that is not returned. You know the the love for someone who never saw that I was there, right? And it's again, it's perfect for this. It's not a love that like oh yeah, we dated for a while and then uh, went south because then it's then it's like okay, well why did it happen? Whose fault is it? Why are you incompatible? Um, it's not a it's not a like. Oh yeah, I've I've loved her for so long and she has always said no, she's always denied me. No, it's the it's the silent love of again, not a perfect emotion, but a perfect emotion to play up on camera, right? So tough to figure out what is Peter's deal? Is he just playing the game well or does he just happen to be someone that the game naturally loves? Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. Now, everyone, thank you so much for joining me here today. I hope you have an excellent night if you are not joining me further, and I hope that I will see you next week. Once again, do not forget, we have got the Realms of Recetus. Um, Our tabletop RPG games are starting up again, uh, and we are doing... Uh, campaign planning next week. So if you want to be in on that, head over to Discord. We have got the Realms of Restitus channel down in the Tabletop RPGs category. Um, it's down sort of toward the bottom. Definitely go and check that out because I want y'all in there. I want to hear what your uh, what your preferences are. I want to hear what you are what your thoughts are on that. Um, and you can find the link. Uh, I want to sort of like I want to drop this link here too because uh, this is what we've been working on. Um, it doesn't have quite as many pictures as I would like, and it's still not, it's still not in like perfect shape, but y'all, we have been working really hard on this, uh, on this wiki and it's got quite a bit more information than it did before. So I hope you will go in and check it out. It's going to be very exciting and, uh, y'all are going to get a chance to participate and play in this, uh, in hopefully bigger and bigger ways over time as I continue to, uh, um, you know, kind of work on how best to do that.
So thank you so much for joining me for this tonight. I hope I will see you on Wednesday. I hope I will see you once again on Thursday next week as we jump into part two of this. And that is all for me. And I hope you have an excellent evening.